podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Stella, how are you, Dave? I'm tremendous. It's beautifully wet outside. It's damp day, which is what our, all Irish people like. How's the sunshine? Uh, well, present and correct, but pretty cold, actually. I'm, I'm very, very disappointed to report that it's fallen to the mid-teens, which uh, I, I don't life. find acceptable. I can you get on to a casting agency and find out who's available to play Matchett in a movie about this tragic event that's taking place to <laughs> <laughs> um, Carol, we are here today to talk about Liverpool versus Leicester City in mm. the Premier League. Leicester were pumped, to be polite, 3-0 <laughs> by Newcastle on Boxing Day or St. Stephen's Day. Uh, a Chris Wood penalty on three minutes. Miguel Almiron deciding that he's still the best player in the Premier League on seven minutes. And then Jolington on 32 minutes. Wrapped it up and everybody should have just gone home at that point. We have talked about Leicester. And we talked about them recently in a podcast we did where we suggested that they might want to be a little bit active in the January transfer window. They've had a really strange season where they started off dreadfully. Uh, they didn't win any of their first seven games, took only one point from those seven games and sat dead bottom of the Premier League. They conceded more goals than any other team in Premier League history through their first seven games. But then they did turn it around. They beat Forest, but then they lost to Bournemouth. Then a draw with Palace, a win over Leeds, a hammering of Wolves. They lost to City, which is fine. And then they beat Everton and then they beat West Ham. And it looked like they had finally figured some things out. Madison was playing really well. Harvey Barnes had found form. Tielemans was really starting to tick. Uh, Wootfass had settled in in defence and was looking like a, a good addition. And then they got Newcastle and got absolutely walloped. Was it just a case, do you think, that they were caught cold? Or are they just a bad team? Um, My... my... Feeling going into these new round of Premier League games, you know, the, the first meaningful matches back was that you were going to see quite the effect of good or bad coaching. Uh, obviously, there's going to be differences to that across the board. Even really good preparation sometimes just doesn't translate to good performance on the day or good energy or whatever. But with like two weeks build up at the very least, more for some teams, but at least two weeks build up. Preparation, knowing who you're going to have available, barring last-minute injury or illness or whatever. Um, all that time to work on one specific opponent and the defensive approach you're going to take and everything. 
you should be seeing here either very good, well, well-coached well teams playing well in that first match and knowing what they're doing and being organised off the ball. And those who are not well-coached or don't have a great coaching structure, I think, was quite apparent um, that they didn't put in. I haven't seen every single one of the games. So, like I said, I'm not going to say that unilaterally across the board, but I think this was a very, very notable theme. I think if you look at Everton's performance, if you look at... Uh, Leicester, obviously, um, even to an extent, actually, Aston Villa, I was expecting more from them from, from Liverpool's match. Uh, Bournemouth, the same on Tuesday. All of these teams really struggled to put in decent performances, whether or not they had been good before the international break or the, the World Cup break, a big international break. Whereas I think if you look at, and it's not just the fact that they're good sides, but if you look at Fulham, if you look at uh, Liverpool, for example, on the ball at the very least, if you look at Manchester United's performance, these were all much, much better than they had been in at least a couple of regards uh, to, to team performances prior to the World Cup break. And this is down to coaching. And I don't mean management here. I mean the actual coaching plans and sessions put on day-to-day in training. And the teams which came out and didn't really look like they were well-organized or well-prepared or had a really good plan of what they were doing, I think that that in large part, speaks volumes as to not great use of pitch time. I, I would completely agree. I haven't seen every game yet. Um, still have to watch the entirety of Brighton Southampton, which I don't know if I'll bother. I have to watch Brentford Tottenham, and again, I don't know if I'll bother. But I have seen the others, and Crystal Palace looked completely unprepared. Everton looked completely unprepared. Also, you know, Frank Lampard. West Ham looked like they hadn't been together at all during the the break. It looked like they literally just turned up. How do we play again? Oh, yeah, let's go do that. And we're awful. And Nottingham Forest last night, was they were just a shambles. Leicester really did stand out to me because there was just... Do you remember when they got walloped by... Brighton and then by Spurs, or it might have been the other way around, but they got they got walloped in back-to-back games by Brighton and Spurs. And it was like they had a little bit of fight in them, and then when the game started to go against them, they just sort of gave up and down tools. And this was like that, except there was no fight. When the first goal was in, it was like they all threw their hands up in the air and went, oh, well, what can we do now? Game's over. And there was no fight in the team. There was no... Real desire. Vardy showed what you expect Jamie Vardy to show and tried to make a couple of things happen. He came off the bench, but I mean, I know they're missing Madison and that's a huge big thing for them. They just looked like a team that had had enough of the season. It was, you know, when you see a team that are going to finish somewhere between like Ninth and 14th. They're not in any risk of relegation, but they're not going to get into Europe. And in about April time, it's like, right, well, you know, season's kind of over. Let's just go through the motions. It was like that. This is the 15th game of the season. This isn't April. This is Christmas time. This is, you've got to go out and turn your season around. And you go into the game in 13th place. Looking like you could mount a challenge on Europe, considering how tight the league is, and serve up that it was 
it was very, very disappointing. And it does make me wonder, do those players want to play for Brendan Rodgers anymore? I mean, it was a very all-round poor performance. I thought right throughout that side, there were very, very bad individual performances on the ball, really loose, really not concentrated performances, some very uh, questionable amounts of running off the ball in certain areas of the pitch, Um, some odd decision-making in other areas of the pitch when they were in possession. Um, I I think he's terrible. I really do. I just do not see very many redeeming qualities for him as a centre-back. I think the only real step forward that I saw from, from him, from Leicester as a defensive unit, prior to the international break was the fact that they had kept playing the same people in the same positions and they started to get a bit better understanding and they started to get a bit better um, consistency by by that and a little bit of cover for each other. But individually, I think he's a terrible defender. I really do. I mean, the amount of times he just took it upon himself to try and run forward 15 yards to nip in front of a player and make a challenge try and tow the ball away, try and dribble forward 15 yards and they're suddenly out of position and doesn't really do anything with the ball, doesn't sprint back into position afterwards, left a massive, massive gap behind him that a more mobile forward than Chris Wood, he would have been in like 15 yards of space to run through multiple times in that game. Um, Tielemans, I thought, was a disgrace. He was rubbish, really, really poor. Like no running, no energy, no effort. Moaning at his teammates for giving the ball away. Moaning at his teammates for giving the ball away. Yeah, um, I mean, Dakar didn't have a very good game, but at least he was making some off-the-ball runs. Dewsbury Hall, I didn't think, really did that even. He, he you know, made a few challenges and stuff, but didn't do too much in terms of, again, making making angles for the pass. Harvey Barnes, the same in the first half. He was a bit better uh, a bit better second half, maybe, but you know, not, not excellent. Luke Thomas was one of the ones who was doing the job okay, but actually technically really poor. Gave it away so many times with... Just very, very easy passes, which were not concentrated on. Sumari was the same in that regard. It was just a very, very poor performance all round from Leicester. I mean, if they play that way again at Anfield, ten nil, no problem. Like, uh, I hope that that's what <laughs> I hope that that's what they produce. Let's put it that way. If but, they turn up and play that, we'll battle them. Yes, yes, like, that will absolutely be the case. But as you pointed out just before we started, more likely or more expected at the very least is a reaction. Yeah, yeah, considering what happened last year, well, that was at least at their ground. But just a couple of things. Everybody knows Leicester are poor at defending set pieces. And that predominantly does come down to a lack of coaching. That's not enough time being spent on that on on the training ground. But there's nothing you can do as a coach if... One of your players, who's six one and fairly well built, just gets absolutely monstered on a set piece and is really, really weak. And at the first sign of contact, flails themselves on the floor. Samare's defending of Jolington on that set piece was a disgrace, and I would have taken him off immediately. Because you're a big, big guy, and you're being tasked with marking Jolington. I know Jolington's a bit bigger than you, and he's a strong guy and whatever else. But there's no excuse for how Samari defended that. And, like, you can look through this team. I mean, 
Constantine, yeah, we've talked about before. He's just not very good. Daniel Amarty is never, ever, ever going to be a Premier League centre-back. Ever. I don't know why Rodgers insists on playing him. I get that Seonchu has been poor for about 18 months now, maybe even a little bit longer. But he's a better centre-back than Daniel Amarty. He's had a contract in six months, and you might want to keep him. You might not, but you might want to keep him. You might want to give him a goal next to face because Amarty and face is not a partnership you can run the rest of the season with. And if you play Sayanchu, you could play Amarty at right back, which is what his position actually is. And you could maybe just tuck those full backs in a bit more and give yourself a defensive base. But from minute one, Amarty was all over the place. Absolutely all over the place. Didn't seem to know what he was doing. The second goal, the Almiron goal, is obviously getting a lot of praise for Almiron's quick thinking and quick movement and the, the good pass from Bruno Gomes. The defence just stands and watches him. Like statues. It's like he's running through a department store. The back lot of a department store where they keep all the mannequins. They just all stand there and watch him sail through. Nobody makes an effort to make a tackle. This was this was a catastrophe from Leicester from start to finish. And once again, Danny Ward. If there's a worse goalkeeper in the Premier League, I haven't seen them. He is awful. Genuinely awful. And I it still baffles me that there were journalists who wrote with seriousness that Jurgen Klopp was going to give him the opportunity to be his number one. Because there's absolutely no way that was ever going to be the case. Now, last season, Leicester got hammered 6-3 by Manchester City on St. Stephen's Day. And it only ended 6-3 because City decided to ease up. Having been 4-0 up after 25 minutes, City took the foot off the gas let Leicester get back into it. They got back to 4-3. And then City decided that they might as well put in some effort. And grab two more goals. A few days later, we played Leicester. Now, it was at the King Power. Leicester lined up with Marty and Ndidi at centre-back. So, you know, no centre-backs. Castanier and Thomas as full-backs. Addison, Dewsbury Hall, Chowdhury and Samari in midfield. Um, Telemans was, was injured but fit enough for the bench and then Vardy and Iheanacho up front that was not a particularly good Leicester team we went in close to full strength get Allison in goal Trent Costas played left back Joel and Virgil played centre back Vino played it was the Henderson Oxlade Chamberlain eats from hell which was a problem in multiple games that they started together last year. And then it was Mane and Salah either side of Diogo Jota. Or it might have been Mane through the middle, I can't remember. Either way, we went with a pretty strong team. And somehow managed to lose that game despite having 21 shots to their six, four on target to their one, 64% of the ball. Just dominated the game. 12 corners to their one. And yet, somehow, we lost that game. And because it's us, I I have this horrible feeling that this type of horrendous thing could happen again. So, 
going to ask you to put my mind at ease. Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. Um, would you like to do the predictions first this time instead then, before we talk about the game? Would that be yes. would that settle you? Yes. 5-0. Oh. Oh. I'm not really sure what to do with that information. Look, um, there's, there's a couple of things here, right? First of all, I don't see any reason why Liverpool won't win the game. No, Leicester have to put in a bit a better performance than they did against Newcastle because Leicester cannot almost put in a worse performance than they did against Newcastle. So just by like you know half the team doing their job, you're better already. You're not actually good, but you're better. Um, there's there's got to be a reaction. It's Brendan Rodgers, so I would expect that maybe there might be a system change slightly, whether that's go to the back three, whether that's put the extra one in midfield, something like that, maybe even go to a 4-4-2. He's done all manner of things. There's very rarely any sort of consistency with it after a couple of big defeats. But by and large, unless Liverpool are absolutely dreadful in front of goal, I don't see us not scoring at least a couple against this Leicester defence, whoever they have played. Secondly, it's a quirk. It's not really a thing, but... As long as we don't concede first, we should be winning this game. It's nine games in a row now where only one team, as a maximum, has scored in a Leicester match. Either they score all the goals or they don't score at all. That's it. And it's once in 12 that that hasn't happened. It's, it's not proof. It never is. It could be just a, a you know, statistical anomaly. But it is very, very indicative of this recent run that they've had. If they go behind, heads drop. No reaction, nothing at all to get themselves back in the game. But when they go ahead, obviously the confidence rises and they feel a bit better about things and they go on and they do manage to, to see out the victory. And that you know even includes a couple of the, the League Cup matches that they've had against lower league opposition, which yeah. is neither here nor there in terms of form, but does show the same sort of um, squad familiarity, let's say, uh, in terms of doing the same stuff regardless of who is playing. But like, you know... Going back quite a while now, if they if they didn't score first, they lost the game, basically. And I would expect that that's going to be the case again. As long as we start well, we did play quite well in terms of our on-the-ball stuff. Attacking going forward was a very, very different sort of Liverpool to defensive work, I thought, against Villa. And I think that we'll have lots of the ball and lots of chances. So, as I say, unless we are absolutely terrible in front of goal, I don't see any way Liverpool don't win this game. Let's talk about Liverpool then. Let's talk about that Aston Villa game. Liverpool run out 3-1 winners. Salah gets Liverpool off to a great start on five minutes. And Dyke doubles the lead on 37. Ollie Watkins pulls one back for Villa. And you could kind of feel it coming at the time. I thought Liverpool responded well. And Stefan Bastic with his first goal on 81 minutes to wrap things up. There was a lot of good in that game, Carl, but there were also certain things that concerned me. I did feel like at times we were a little bit too easy to play through. 
I felt like our midfield had a iffy first 10 and then a really strong 35. But in the second half, I felt like they looked a little bit ploddy and weren't weren't getting about as well as they had been in, in that first half. And I thought Villa were able to just bypass them quite easily at times. I, I thought Joel Matip had a, a, a shaky game. But Watkins bullied him in the first half quite badly. Obviously, he got the goal, and I, I didn't think Joel was particularly good for the goal, but he did improve as the game went on. What did you make of Liverpool's performance? Yeah, m- much the same, to be fair. Um, I think that the the way we were able to step up, and we weren't really pressing ridiculously high, but we were able to get a lot of regains and make sure that they had to make passes in the middle third in that first half, which we were then able to get back and keep possession and keep quite high possession. And then in the second half, when we dropped deep, we didn't seem able to break that whatsoever. Like We really, really struggled to break out of shape in the second half for that sort of 25-minute spell where it was just them and they were just spreading it wide and doing the crosses and all that kind of stuff. I thought our centre-backs defended well in that period uh, because they were under quite a lot of pressure, but positionally was good, execution of the clearances was good. But like I say, in attack, in build-up play, I thought Liverpool were really good for most of it. Uh, very, very good for for, for large, large parts of that match. But you would have seen Liverpool be really good two, three years ago and also still be set up for transitions against them. And that's what enabled us to keep pressure on for like 60, 70 minutes sometimes, whereas we haven't really done that this season. I think that that is, again, a big part of the players either side of Fabinho, um, not quite quick enough, quite aggressive enough, not quite in the right positions all the time. We're a little bit too easy. Yeah, pretty much. It's it's um it's a large part of that. It's it's not just Wijnaldum. He's obviously one big huge part of it. It's a, a lack of mobility on the other side, on the other eight. Uh, lack of energy and athleticism compared to a couple of years ago, which is kind of normal if you're playing the same person and they've got older and the the other replacement for them basically is a lot younger and isn't there yet. So that's still something we have to rectify. But it was a step forward. In fact, I'd say it was. At least two step forwards, but more to work on still. Yeah, I think that's fair. I thought there was some good individual performances. I thought Virgil had uh, a typically Virgil kind of game. I thought Robbo was really good after an iffy performance against City. For me, the biggest positive was Fabinho, mm. who I thought once again looked like the real Fabinho and not whatever that was that we saw for end of last season and the beginning of this season. What did you make of the front three with Salah, Darwin and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain playing left side? Now, I say front three, but it was very much a 4-4-2. If you look at the average positions for the players in this game, it was Darwin with Mo off him, Henderson right, Ox left and a double pivot in midfield. But what did you make of Mo and Darwin and Oxlade-Chamberlain as individuals? Um, <laughs> I, I love Darwin. I love watching him play. He's an absolute lunatic. Uh, I, I christened him on Raw, the agent of chaos, and I think that that's what I'll stick to. Um, he is going to get between creating and scoring two goals a game for Liverpool. No, no question about that. No problem with him missing chances and him doing silly things at the minute because you just have to accept it. If you're going to get to a very, very good point, you have to be good and not quite good sometimes to get there. Um, 
he's impossible to deal with. None of their defenders stopped him at any point. That's why he had so many chances, why he missed so many chances, that's why he set up so many chances. They had no way of stopping him whatsoever. So yeah, his finishing was poor on the day again. Don't worry about it. He still set up one of the goals basically with effort and endeavour, which most forwards would have given up on before that went out of play for Bajetic's goal. Um, Salah was really good, I thought, actually. He was a little bit quiet in some spells of matches, obviously, but he, he tracked back and defended quite well. He was helping us break out of counter-attacks. Uh, one of the passes that he played through for, for Darwin's run from deep was really, really good as well. Obviously scored himself, getting in the right areas a couple of times. Could have had a, another one another time. So all good for those two. Oxley chamberlain I think this was an absolutely fine performance. I think getting 60 out of him was as much as you could expect. I think in terms of the work rate and where he took up positions and the job that he had to do was as much as you could expect and was pretty fine. Technically, rusty. You could definitely see he hadn't had like match action in a long time. So that was to be expected. I didn't expect like fireworks from him on the ball, let's say. But I think he did the, the job that we needed off him really well. I, I agree with all of that. Like, I saw some people bemoaning Ox. I thought he was fine. Like, didn't do anything wrong. He worked hard. He linked play. He, yeah, you'd like to see more quality for him. But like you said, he's he's barely played. Like, he's barely played in a year. You think back to when he got hooked against Forrest in the cup, and he came off bemoaning the fact that he hadn't played in ages, and he's barely played since then as well. So I was fine with how Ox played. I thought Darwin was was. Just, I thought he was just brilliant. It, 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 poor Ezra Conza. That fella, I would say, needed fluids at half time because he was just in a panic from minute one, trying to deal with Darwin. Because it's pretty clear that at times Darwin doesn't know what Darwin's going to do next, and if he doesn't know, how the fuck is any defender meant to know? But that third goal. Like, the first touch is brilliant. The pace is incredible. And like you said, the endeavour and the industry to keep that ball in play and create a dangerous situation. I think, and, and correct me if, if you think I'm wrong here, I think from a technical level, his touch, his dribbling, has improved as the season has gone on. Now, I get that in the last two games, his finishing hasn't been hasn't been good but the thing is we've seen this guy be a good finisher in a Liverpool shirt we've seen him score some really good goals and we saw it at Benfica last year it was clear at Almeria as well when he's confident and he's in a groove he is a good finisher so it doesn't really bother me that he's missing some chances now as long as he's impacting the game in positive ways I'm all for it. And I want to see more of this partnership with him and Mo and Mo in more central areas because you might you might be able to deal with one of them. I don't see a Premier League defence that's going to be able to deal with both of them. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, even in terms of the goal scoring, to be honest, I went through this on Raw with, um, with Jim and Harry at the time as well. Complaining about the, the goals that he hasn't scored is a bit... It's disingenuous, really. There are two players out of the top six plus Newcastle who are making themselves a top seven team now, obviously. 
who have scored more than Dow in this season. And that's Harry Kane and Erling Haaland. That's it. And they play every minute of every game they're fit for. Darwin's already had spells out because of adjustment, because he's new, because he headbutted somebody, because of all the other reasons, you know? So, and he's been playing left wing in some of the games as well. The other two are pure nines. So you're not going to get the most out of him uh, in terms of goals across all competitions across the entire season. But if he's only trailing those two from other clubs, I think we're doing all right so far. Yeah, he could have had more. He could also have been far worse, like half of the others have been. Um, I have no problem with what he is contributing at the moment, even in terms of like you know, off the ball stuff and the amount of work rate he's got and the the way that we were able to relieve pressure a few times against Villa in that really tough period in the second half just by letting him run onto things. He's not just a big Chris Wood. He's really, really rapid. Nobody could keep pace with him. So you can put it up to his chest or head or you can put it beyond him and let him go in a foot race. And even if he doesn't quite get that first touch right to go towards goal or beyond the defender, he's still going to drag it and boot it and scream the team upfield another 30 yards to relieve that pressure. And then you build again and you go from the top. And it's okay. He doesn't have to be perfect straight off the bat. No. We didn't buy him for six months. We bought him for six years. Minimum. This is a reason we signed him to an ex- ex- to a long contract. There's a reason we paid so much money for him. And we've put him in the hands of the guy who is primarily responsible for Robert Lewandowski's career. And when you look at Klopp's track record with Ford players, such as Lewandowski, such as Marco Royce, such as Aubameyang, such as Salah, such as Mane, Bobby, Jota, Diaz. You look at what he's been able to do. He levels all of them up. And in some cases, significantly so. And I also, I'm drawn to think back a number of years, Carl, to when another Uruguayan arrived at the club. And he had that really exciting first six months when we were a bit shit. And Kenny figured out a system that was basically Suarez up front with three supporters in Maxi and Cowden and Raul Morales, and then a double pivot, which was largely Jay Spearing and Lucas Leiva, which might be the worst <laughs> double pivot in the history of football. But Suarez knitted it all together and made it work. And in the following season, the, the shape changed because Downing arrived and Andy Carroll got fit and Damn Adam got... And yeah, Carol's back. Henderson came into the into the club from Sunderland. Charlie Adam arrived, and the team changed. And Suarez had, forgetting what happened, whatever. Suarez had a season where he was always offside. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa. He does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL roundtable there every week after the Premier League match week. 
So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. And he was missing so many really good chances. One-on-ones, get through, and he'd do that thing with the outside of his foot and blare it over the crossbar or dribble it at the goalkeeper. And you were getting really, like, as a fan base, we were getting really frustrated with him. Didn't help that the team was shit. But we were getting really frustrated with him. And then once it clicked for Luis, and once the team got more focused around Luis, he really took off. I think we've seen in the last two games a slight alteration in how the team is playing to be more inclusive of Darwin. Because when we started the season, like you said, he was playing a lot of left wing and the team was set up to get more out of Mo, obviously, best player. And a lot of fans were bemoaning the fact that we weren't creating chances for Darwin in the same way that City were creating a tap-ins a game for Haaland. Now we are creating more chances for Darwin. Not the simple chances that Haaland gets, but there's more chances being created for him. There's more play through him. I think as the team adapts to him and he adapts to the team... I can really see a situation where he gets like 10 goals in 8 games. Everything he hits just seems to fly in. We saw in the early parts of the season, it it took some world-class saves and some very strong goal frames to stop him scoring some absolute worldies. When he played on instinct and when he was confident and just letting things go, I feel like once it clicks for him and he gets a bit of confidence... I think he will just go on an extended run where he just looks unstoppable. Yeah, I agree. Fully agree. And to be honest, I think Leicester is a really good uh, example of a team who he could go on and score a hat-trick against. And in fact, I'll put that in my prediction. There you go. 5-0 with a Nunez hat-trick. I, I completely see this is the type of team he would just utterly bully. Teams who are not completely set in a defensive um, organisation shape, teams who are not really, really good in transitions in terms of the midfielders covering areas, teams who don't have a lot of pace at the back, who maybe have a bit of height at the back, but are not, I wouldn't say, aerially powerful at the back. Um, I, if he is in any way confident and proactive, he's going to get half a dozen chances against Leicester, no question. As you know, assuming Liverpool are not collectively a bag of crap. Um, but all things being equal, we shouldn't be. Guy is now in advance blaming me for Daniel Amati's 10 out of 10 Ballon d'Or performance against Leicester. So <laughs> if that does happen, my bad, sorry. But uh, like I say, all things being equal, Darwin should absolutely destroy them. I agree. And it's also worth pointing out that while, you know, it's the popular thing to criticise Darwin or whatever, we should remember that he's not the only, like, he had a decent start to the season, whereas other players were not particularly good. And two of the players that haven't been particularly good this season are the two players primarily responsible for creating opportunities for him. Andy Robertson, who seems to have found a bit of form before the break and has obviously had that good performance. 
And Trent, who's had arguably the worst stretch of his career. But, Carl, that pass to Robertson for the Salah goal and his general play against Aston Villa was a real signal that the real Trent Alexander-Arnold might just be ready to stand back up. He, I thought, was one of the biggest positives coming out of that game. Yes, I took Fabinho as my my top uh, glad thing from the match, other than obviously the win, and uh, Trent a, a relatively close second. To be honest, it was the two most important, uh, sorry, most intriguing players in the lineup in terms of how they performed after a rest, but not actually a rest because they did go and train and all the rest of it, but not many minutes. So it was very very good to see them both perform well, better. Um, some of Trent's passing. Right from kickoff was unbelievably the switches of play, um, the outside of the boot ball that you say for the first goal, but plenty of other smaller, less notable stuff, but just like around the corner, first touch balls, little one-two triangles down the, the right channel, playing his way out of trouble, that kind of thing. It was all very confident, very easy for him, very nice and neat and tidy, nothing too sloppy. Um, a few of the shorter range passing later on in the game, I'm not sure whether that was just tiredness or whatever, they certainly got a little bit more ragged as the game went on or obviously as Villa had a bit more pressure on us and then we were trying to play out still but in general that was uh, another one of the very positive things to to take from that first game back. Yeah, I thought he looked a bit more aggressive and a bit more clued in on his defensive work as well which was nice to see. Um, I suppose we, you know, we should take a brief transition here uh, having talked about Darwin and Ali points out that one of the reasons for this big Darwin agenda is not from Liverpool fans, it's from fans of other clubs. Most notably, uh, the red side of Manchester, who Darwin rejected to join us. And history has repeated itself six months later. Liverpool have beaten Manchester United to the signing of Cody Gakpo from... PSV Eindhoven, a fee believed to be in the region of £37 million plus add-ons. Neil Jones says that the final fee will be about £44 million, which is, you know, really in our wheelhouse. Like, those those type of signings are where we you know, live and die when it comes to attackers. You think Mane, you think Salah, you think Jota and Diaz. That's that's really our sweet spot. Um, what's, your, what's your thoughts on Cody Gakpo as the new addition for the club? Uh, I mean, rising to about 44, 45 million pounds, maybe a little bit more. I think that's a good deal. I think the pain in the region of 35 to, well, below 40 anyway, at the minute is about the right sort of level. If he, you know, if you pay the full amount, it's probably because he's been very good and contributed to a lot of team success anyway. So I always think that that's fine, no matter, you know, how high that has to go in the end. If they've, if they've done the job, you don't mind paying it. Um, but the initial fee, I think anything lower than 40 for, for someone at his level is about right. I think it's very, very the right time for Gakpo himself to leave the air of the Vizier. I mean, we've seen a few times over the last couple of years even, like people staying a little bit too long at PSV, at Ajax, um, maybe a couple of other teams, but mostly... You can name Hakim Zayic by name, that's fine. This is a safe space. <laughs> it is, Zach, but it's also Donovan the Big, I think, stayed a season too long. Mm. I think... Probably Nusama Zrawi has stayed a year or even two years too long. There's a couple of other players who that's happened to. So it was really good for him to get out this window, I think. His star is not going to be any higher. 
going back to the Eredivisie, then it would be coming back off the World Cup that he managed to have. So it's a good moment for him to move. I think PSV probably acknowledged that in the price that they were going to get and the teams who were coming in for him as well. Liverpool, obviously it's very good in terms of we're adding another attacker. We've spoken about the need for a new attacker to be added to the mix this month so that we have got the hopefully four addition, uh, sorry, four available again very soon because Firmino should be back relatively soon, we hope. And then if everybody's fit, it's six up until the end of the season and then we'll see about Firmino and so on and so forth. So good in terms of um, numbers and quality level being relatively around the same amount. I, I'm not 100% convinced that his longer-term future for Liverpool is going to be left-hand side of the attack. I think he's, I don't think it will be. No, I think he's someone we'll see a lot more uh, essentially as time goes on, but we'll, uh, I'd prefer to talk about that a little bit later on once it's all done and everything. But just in immediate terms, you know, whether he plays against Brentford or not, if it's all done by then, it doesn't really matter. It might only be off the bench anyway. Um, it's good to have him in early. It's good that the work is getting done early. It's good that with all the upheaval that's going on off the pitch at Liverpool, in terms of Julian Ward leaving and potential board changes, potential sale, blah, 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 we have still got the processes in place to make things happen. Um, so I'm like you in terms of I am always up for adding more Dutchness to the squad. We love that. We've always loved that. And it's uh, it's good to see that come on board. I think there's a lot to work with with Cody Gakpo. We, we need to see more from him in certain aspects, no question. But um, actually, I don't buy into the, the narrative I'm already seeing in a few places in terms of his uh, defensive work, his off-the-ball work isn't good enough, that sort of thing. I, I do not agree with this at all. Um, maybe data tells us this, but positionally, watch them on the pitch. He doesn't necessarily have to go in for the tackles all the time. He's very, very quick to get into position. He's very quick to block off passing lanes, he's very quick to fill his role in the team, which is not to be in-your-face aggressive like Luis Diaz, for example, who will go in for the tackle. That's not what he has been doing for PSV, that's not what he is asked to do for Netherlands, so defensive work has to improve, same as it always does for any forward coming to Liverpool or for Jurgen Klopp, but he does work. People seem to, seem to believe that like we bought Mo and Sadio as, you know, ready-made pressing machines. They, they weren't at all. They showed an aptitude for it. And Gakpo has shown an aptitude for it when it's asked of him. What people seem to forget is for the last 18 months or a little bit more at PSV, he has been the entire hub of their attack. And everything runs through him. And because of that, he has been given... Lightened defensive duties is what I'll call it, where he's not asked to chase fullbacks 60 yards going the other way. He's told to stay high and wide. He's told to stay in certain areas of the pitch so that when PSV turn the ball over, they have that immediate out ball to him, knowing that his technical level is really high and if we get the ball to him, he will take it in and he can hold the ball and allow us to get out, or he can take the ball and immediately start that counter-attack. So, just because he doesn't show an insane level of pressing, and the data doesn't show great pressing at PSV, don't mistake that for him not being able to do it. Every club plays a different way. Every manager has different ideas, and at certain clubs... Certain players are given a freedom to play outside of the system. And when Roger Smith was at 
PSV, before he bumped off to Benfica, he said, I play a high-pressing system, but he spoke specifically about Gakpo and about Noni Mudeki and said, I don't ask them to do as much defensive work as other players because they're so important to my attacking plan. They go high and wide when we're defending and we find them we're out ball and that's what gets us going on the counter and we have done similar with Salah like, Salah has shown an immense ability to press but he doesn't do it all the time because he's not asked to do it all the time Sadio did it all the time because that was Sadio's, one of Sadio's roles in the team but Mo was always that out ball for us so I, I have no doubts that Gakbo can adapt. The only real concerns I have, I don't know if he has the highest ceiling in the world, but I think he's got a pretty high floor. Like I think the worst version of Gakbo from here is going to be a good player. I don't know if he ever becomes an elite level player, but he's going to be a good player at the very worst. And there's a little lack of kind of he doesn't have a, a real explosive first step. He can pick the ball up when he's moving. He's good. But from a standing start, at times, he can be a little bit sluggish to get going. And once he gets going, then it's fine. But I spoke about it on, on Old School with Gags. His, his ball striking is sensational. His ability to hit the ball in stride without having to readjust his feet is really, really high level. It's the same strike of a ball every single time and for a tall player he doesn't have a big long backswing you often see with taller players they draw their leg back and players nip in and nick the ball off them it doesn't happen with him and the other thing is he's a great crosser the ball be it from set piece or open play and that's going to help Darwin I think he'll end up playing more in central areas and in a 4-4-2 in the long term, him off Darwin could be a really nice mix. That chaos that Darwin brings. And then that calm technical level of Cody Gak. But we know he's going to be really well schooled. We know we know he's going to be really well coached. Every kid that comes out of Ajax and PSV is. And I, I'm, I, I wasn't... I had doubts on him. And when I used to... like. Obviously, it's the Eredivisie, so nobody really wants to watch a ton of the Eredivisie anymore. It has dropped significantly as a you know a league to keep an eye on. I always looked at him and thought, oh, you know, kind of like a less talented Marcus Rashford. But I still think that is kind of the comp I'd make for him. But I happen to believe Marcus Rashford is a fucking phenomenal footballer. And I went and spent about seven hours on Scout when this news broke, because what else am I going to do? And the more I watched him, and the more I just watched clips of him doing certain things, such as set-piece deliveries, it's the same delivery every time. It's the same technique. It's really smooth, it's really clean, and it's repeatable and consistent. And that, to me, is a really good sign. And he's He's a great corner taker. If nothing else, he's a phenomenally good corner taker. Which, when we're lining up with Ibu or Joel, plus Virgil, plus Darwin, and if we land Jude Bellingham, that's a lot of, and like that's a lot of big, big men jumping for the ball. We also know that Luis Diaz is quite good in the air. So, 
It's another string to our bow. Another way that we can score goals by having this this guy who is primarily... No, sorry. He's seen primarily as a goal scorer by a lot of people. He's got more assists over the last two years, the last season and a half. He does goals. And that's something to, to keep an eye on, is the fact that he does create a lot of goals for other people from set pieces and crosses. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super-fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac, and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, magboxes, and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. Uh, Set-piece delivery is very, very good. Um, It's not actually just about his dead ball delivery, though. Like you say, he has a lovely little clipped cross. He's not a always a check back in and shoot on his right foot. He does deliver good curling balls to the back post, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I had a look at some of his numbers yesterday. I, I watch him enough. I know what he's like. I know what his game is. And I went to have a look at the actual numbers to see where he ranks, you know, and area of his terms, he's so miles out in front, it's not even worth a comparison. So it's not just about the golden assist, but the, the manner of his creations, you know, it's mo- it's the most... Uh, dribbles leading to a shot it's the most of his own shots which lead immediately to another shot after they're saved and you know blocked or whatever else in the entire league it's the most um through balls in the final third it's the most just anything that you can think of he's top for all of it it's ridiculous he's so far in front he just he had to move on now so i i think he'll be a very very good addition in terms of keeping that level at the same sort of thing i mean you talk about how good he could be personally i think he's uh, good chance to be better than Diogo Jota. Probably not as good as Mo Salah if we're looking at just Liverpool forwards. Um, I mean, I've spoken obviously quite a lot of time since Jota signed about I don't think he is as good as the others. I, I still don't. I don't see any reason to change that. But he's impactful. And I think Gakpo can be probably the same sort of thing. He can be impactful for us in quite a lot of ways, in quite a lot of games. And he does give us an ability to change shape more readily um, than, let's say, just playing Darwin. Uh, you can go to a four-two-three-one. You can go to the the diamond that Firmino used to be at the tip of. You can do a lot of things with Gakpo's lineup without changing any players. So, all things considered, good addition. I expect him to get better. I expect him to do certain things less over time. I think there'll be frustrations early on with him probably holding on to the ball too much and doing a few other things which you would expect for you know the best player in the league who always always gets the ball in his team will try and do that now in his new side and has to realize he's playing better defenders and better 
set up opponents and he has better players around him so he can rely on them more in turn. But that will all take time. Overall, I, I don't see this as being anything other than a decent deal for Liverpool. And the, like the values there, especially when you see Arsenal having a bid of significantly more turned down for the less proven Michaelo Mudrik. And as much of a crapshoot as it can be signing players from the Eredivisie, signing players from Ukraine, you just don't know what you're getting a lot of the time. Because especially in recent years, the calibre of that league has fallen off a cliff. Now, I know he's impressed in the Champions League, but people's excitement over him is largely over his ability on the counter-attack, his pace. I don't think these people have seen him play in a possession-based team when things are really tight and you're up against a deep block. That's a completely different thing. Gakbo plays against a deep block pretty much every game. He's going to be used to playing for a team that dominates possession and he's going to be used to having to break down defences. Obviously, Mudrik does it in Ukrainian league for Shakhtar, but when it's in Europe, they play a totally different style. If you look at him in the Ukrainian league, he's not nearly as impressive as he is when he plays in the Champions League because he's not playing with acres of space in behind. So I think we've gotten a really good deal here. Like, not that's not to say Mudrik's not a very good player. I think he is, and I think he'll be a good addition if he comes to the Premier League. But I think we've gotten a good player, a good price, and like you said, it's really good to have it done early. And by all accounts, Julian Ward worked pretty much non-stop over Christmas get the deal done. And I also like the fact that Paul Joyce tweets about it at half past eight or whatever it was, and by 10 o'clock, PSV are tweeting out that the deal is done. So, you know, it was done before the journalists were, were briefed about it, which is how we should be doing our business. Um, right, quickly back to Leicester then. You've gone 5-0. What is your what is your predicted lineup? Do you think he goes with the same team that play played against Villa or could you see one or two changes? Um I think the defense stays the same. I think Canate must be really really pushing for being the starter now alongside Van Dijk but just given the turnaround of days and obviously how little training he's had I think Matip probably stays in for this one. There's always the possibility of a midfield change because, you know, <laughs> it's Liverpool. Midfield is what we uh, like to, to have issues with, isn't it? So that's that's still open to debate. But I think this time I would probably stick with the 11. Um, short of anybody coming back who's a big surprise, I don't think Cater did anywhere near enough. I don't think Elliot is a must-start at the minute. I don't think there's any obvious change you have to make. So I'm I'm happy to go with the same 11. Might as well start with the same 11 and on 60 you can start to make changes when you're, you know, 3 or 4 nil up. Um, yeah, I, I think, I don't know if I can get to 5, but I think I'll go 3 nil. Um I do think we should win the game. I, I, they're, they're not good. They're just not good. They're not good defensively. Currently not good in midfield. They've got talent in attack. Real talent in attack, and and everybody is aware of the talent they have in attack in in Barnes and Vardy and Daka and Mianacho, and they're all players that have you know strengths, but some weaknesses as well. Um, James Madison is out, and that's a that's a big plus for us because I think you could strongly say that he is their best player. 
Um, they're also going to be missing James Justin, Ricardo Pereira, Johnny Evans, uh, who played right wing, and Ryan Bertrand, who, who, who just never plays anyway. Um, it looks like we have no Diaz, no Arthur, no Jota, no Curtis Jones, no Bobby, no Milner, but Ibu, you know, is probably going to make the bench. So, yeah, I, I think same team, go and beat them. And then when the next game rolls round, and obviously we play on Monday the 2nd, if we can get Gakpo registered on the 1st, which they're saying they are going to allow registrations be made on the 1st, and maybe he becomes an option off the bench for the Brentford game. And Brentford is the game I'd be looking to start Ibu. Because last season, Ivan Tony turned Joe Matip into his personal play toy. And I think... Ibu would be more physically capable of dealing with the threat of Ivan Tony. So, um, yeah, go go same team, and then you can make some changes for for Brentford, and then you do get a two week break from Premier League action because after that game we don't play again till the fourteenth. So you know you, you've thirteen days there, or twelve days there, for players to rest, and you can just bin off the FA Cup, play play the kids in the FA Cup, give Ben Doak a start. Actually, one last thing, Ben Doak. Carl, how mean of it was it of this child to steal the soul of poor Luca Dina? I'm not aware that Dina had one to begin with. <laughs> he did play for Everton for a number of years. It was just rude. It was rude and inconsiderate to go to that man's home ground and embarrass him in the way that he did. I, I thought the um, even more notable aspect was the fact he tried to do him a second time a little bit later on with an outrageously big step over. Um, fair play to Dina, he won that tackle. I think if he had have missed it, that was a card or a big 40-yard gap behind him. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of inconsiderate, uh, today is the birthday of Simon Brundish, and I would like it known I am against everybody who has a birthday over the Christmas period you're just being inconsiderate. You're looking for two presents in a short period of time. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Have your birthday like normal people between March and October. Huh? Yeah, there we go. Right, anything you want to let people know about before we go? Uh, as and when it's confirmed, I have a lovely Cody Gakpo piece coming out on The Independent. There you go. It looks like medical today. Hopefully then we get the announcement from the club day or tomorrow and it will all be signed sealed and delivered and he can be registered on january 1st and maybe make his debut against brentford on january 2nd wouldn't that be nice right we will leave it there uh seriously though happy birthday mr brundish if you do hear this i i know you don't generally listen to podcasts that you're not on unless they're about baseball but happy birthday nonetheless and uh, we'll see you next time take care of yourselves bye-bye We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, 
we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.